Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 104 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. This episode is brought to you thanks to our sponsor, Connected Data. Learn more about their product, Transporter, a private off-cloud storage device at filetransporter.com slash KMR. In our last episode, we discussed the move by Adobe, Microsoft, and others into software subscriptions. Since that episode, cyber surveillance has been the big story in the news, and I've actually had several people talk to me about taking steps to protect their data. That gave us the idea for this podcast. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report, we will discuss encryption and uh, why lawyers should care about it and maybe some updates on encryption or whether there are, I guess, updates to begin with from the last time or from the times that we've talked about in the past. In our second segment, we'll talk about my uh, recent switch from the iPhone to an Android phone and whether anybody cares about that. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip website or observation that you can start using the second this podcast is over. But first, let's uh, get started on our main topic, and that's encryption. I have to admit that I don't hear lawyers talking a lot about encryption, encrypting their email, encrypting their electronic files. Uh, I don't really hear when we talk about technology, that's not a subject that I hear most lawyers talking about. I don't see the legal technology blogs talking about encryption. Um, but you know, frankly, there's nothing like a good scandal to get everybody excited and interested and panicked about a particular issue. And and that's exactly what we have with the NSA disclosing that they've been monitoring a lot of the things that we, we do a lot more closely than we knew they did. And, uh, and so, I mean, I guess my question, Dennis, is are, are people really asking you if they should start encrypting everything? Well, to be fair, a couple of people have been talking to me about how they were thinking that maybe they, they should start encrypting everything. But, but I think it... it uh, but there, there is interest in that because people are, are saying like, well, what is out there? And we sort of have some sense that, that what we do is, is open or can be open and that we aren't actively encrypting things. And so I think it's a good time to, to look back on encryption and what's out there and why it really hasn't taken hold and in some ways, and in, in some ways, it's it's part of the fabric of how we use internet on on secure sites. But that that sort of basic notion of of going out there and, and encrypting encrypting data just hasn't hasn't really taken hold, as, as especially for lawyers. I mean, I think there's a number of reasons. It's 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 hard to do. There's not easy tools, or does it seem like there's easy tools? It's a little inconvenient. So all those things that lawyers and every everybody else hates uh kind of get in the way other than except there's this you have this idea that you have to you know we have this duty of confidentiality we need to to protect that um and encryption seems one good way to to do that so it's always been out there it's people have talked about it it sort of ebbs and flows but I think maybe it's coming back up again, and it's, I think, Tom, maybe a good time to talk about it. I don't know that we're going to see a lot of movement, but at least people are talking about it again. 
I agree. And, and, and I think that I'm going to put the blame for the reason why lawyers don't talk about it enough squarely. And, and maybe this will be controversial. Maybe it's not controversial. I, I'm going to put the blame squarely on the ABA opinion, um, which whether people are interpreting it correctly or not, I think that people have, have, have interpreted that opinion to say that you do not need to encrypt your email uh, in order to be compliant with the rules regarding confidentiality. And um, I, I think that, that, in effect, this opinion is effectively giving lawyers permission to ignore encryption. And I think that's a large reason why we don't have the, that opinion. And then when you add to that the fact that encryption is not an easy subject to kind of wrap your mind around, I know we'll talk more about that later, uh, you have a perfect opportunity for lawyers to forget about encryption. I went and looked at the, uh, the 2013 ABA Legal Technology Survey, and the most recent results show that about 30% of lawyers are using encryption to secure their files, but only about 24% are using it to send secure email. And what's interesting is that number actually goes up to closer to 50%, but only for the biggest law firms, which means that uh, it shows that I think the solo and smaller firms are hardly using it at all. I think the reason for that is, is, that, is that with the bigger firms, you've got an IT department who is sort of doing their due diligence. They have ins- information security uh, concerns that they need to deal with. And so they're installing that software um, on behalf of the lawyer, where with the solo and small firms, they may not know enough about it or care enough about it or be concerned enough about it to do anything. But I, I think it's still very telling that, um, that even in the biggest firms, not even half of them are using, uh, are, are using encryption. It, does, does that make sense as to why the reasons, or do you have other suspicions why that might be happening? Well, I mean, a couple of things. And those, those percentages to me are interesting because those are the people who actually, I, I think that means that lawyers who think that they are encrypting, which could be completely <laughs> different from people who are act, actually doing it. True. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you that the, the sort of infamous opinion, 99, 413, I guess there was an, an update or an explanation of it or new version of it maybe in 2011, um, as I recall. I think it w- was, and, and there's like a hundred articles saying it doesn't mean that lawyers don't have to encrypt the email, but um, that's basically how everybody took it. And lawyer friend of mine at the time, John Davidson, said that he just thought that the biggest mistake lawyers were making was not going to the forefront of encryption and really learning it and really using it and kind of taking a stand on confidentiality and, and being the go-to people on encryption. Now, he was certainly a, you know, like a, a voice out in the wilderness with, with that, that point of view. But I think that, that there's been, what, almost 15 years now that since then where lawyers, for the most part, don't feel that they need to encrypt. And so you haven't seen the development in sort of easy encryption tools or the usage of of encryption inside programs and that sort of thing. I'd sort of think that the whole, you know, part of the thing is the whole notion of how difficult it really is to explain encryption. And this, you know, for the most part, it's this, you go back to PGP and pretty good privacy back in the old days and this notion of public key, private key, and you know, you need a public key and a private key, and you send one to the person on the other side, and so you have to have agreement. So you're going to use these things. You got to remember, like, which is a public key and which is private, and how they work together. And 
what was it, like, you know, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago, people would have their PGP key at the bottom of their email. You just, you don't even see that anymore. Um, so I think that it's, it's hard to explain. I don't, I don't think the, the tools or the processes are really intuitive or easy uh, when it comes to encrypting your, your own data. And it's another area where you have to say, oh, I, I need to figure out strong passwords to, you know, to encrypt things and I have to do an extra step. It used to be that the performance would slow down if you're encrypting, say, a drive or files. So you have all of those things on the one hand, well, on the other hand, uh, at the same time, when we're out on the internet and we're, you know, do doing banking, we're doing shopping, you have that sort of encryption of, of data in motion uh, through SSL, the secure socket layer, and, and the newer version TLS, transport layer security. Uh, you know, so when you see the HTTPS, when you go to a site that we like to see when, we, when we're online banking, we know there's encryption. That's that's working there, but that's sort of magic, and it doesn't. We don't have to do anything really for that to happen. So, so I think that that makes it that makes it easier for that because it happens in the background. But I think when it comes to sort of full on, how do we encrypt things? I think that lawyers kind of really struggle with that. I know, Tom, you used to. I, I mean, you were one of the people who used Dropbox earlier on, and and lawyers started to use that, and then this whole question of is do I need to encrypt inside Dropbox or is Dropbox encrypting was sort of raised by a number of lawyers and and that sort of brought the issue up a little bit maybe in the last year or so right right and I think it's I think it's interesting that that for lawyers who are not concerned at all about encrypting their email and don't even think about it uh, you know, every time I can't give an iPad seminar without people asking me, well, Dropbox isn't safe because it's not encrypted. Uh, is that people have a certain expectation, and maybe that's uh, maybe that's part of the magic you talk about about having uh, in encryption automatic on many of the web services that you use, and people are are associating Dropbox with with just another web service. And if it's a a web service or a cloud service, then we expect that the companies that use it will uh, will have encryption. And the fact of the matter is, is that is that the 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 data is encrypted while it's in transit it may not be encrypted at rest and and the fact is and I think what really concerns people more about Dropbox is, is that people are holding on to uh the Dropbox people are holding on to your encryption key and that's you know that that can be a concern I I I certainly take them at their word when they say that they are using it to improve our service to provide us with better service I don't I don't doubt that I believe that's true there can always be a bad person who does something there, but I, I, I'm not that concerned. But what I tell most people is, is that if you really are concerned about that, then use a tool um, like Vivo, like Boxcryptor. I think there's a new tool out. I don't, don't have the name of it right, uh, right handy, but, but both of those tools will, uh, will provide you with the ability to put a, a folder inside your Dropbox account that is fully encrypted, that only you have the key to, that only you can open up. And uh, and so I, I to me that sort of puts puts the, uh, the the notion to rest to the extent that there is a way to secure yourself if you are not already satisfied about Dropbox's level of security as far as their encryption is concerned. But I have to say I'm very curious about how people are concerned about that encryption, but yet not about the emails they send with incredibly confidential information to their clients all the time. Well, and, and even worse is that 
the people, if you ask the people who ask you about encryption on Dropbox, whether the thumb drives they're carrying with them are <laughs> encrypted, there's, there's no way that they are. And that's, that's probably a, a bigger danger. And there's probably no way that the hard drives on the laptop that they're, they're carrying with them are encrypted. And there, there are definitely tools to, to do that. I mean, you can do file and, and file encryption. You can do whole drive encryption. You can do that. In some version of Windows, there's a free program called TrueCrypt I've used and a lot of people have used, although I often use it as the classic, my experience is the classic example of how you create a really strong password, which you should do when you encrypt a file, that if you forget that password, <laughs> what you encrypted is lost, because that happened to me, because it didn't have the password, I didn't use the password I thought I did, so I, had a, I have a, you know, a USB drive that it was encrypted and and not useful to me but it was a t it was i did it as a test so i didn't lose anything so there is a danger of that i sort of think what happened though in the last couple of years that that makes encryption especially the disk encryption really interesting is the solid state drives because um they're so fast that and that now you can encrypt without taking a performance hit that I think it makes it more attractive. And if you start to say, I'm carrying around a laptop, even a personal laptop, and I have, I mean, just think of anything that might, you know, tax returns that you're working on, anything that might have social security numbers, credit card numbers, all those, all those sorts of things on, on an, in unencrypted files on, on something that you're carrying around is ultimately not a great idea. Well, I agree. And, and I know that, um, that we have read, the article that's in the um, in the ABA GP Solo magazine uh, by John Simic and Dave Reese. It's called "Encryption Made Simple for Lawyers." It's a, I think, a very good article. We'll try to put it in the show notes. Um, but uh, a, a great article describing um, the issues around encryption, kind of the basics around it. And you know, I really agree with with what they say about whole drive encryption. That it's it's really in, incredibly effective, and it's relatively easy to do. I was able to take TrueCrypt, like you mentioned, Dennis, uh, using TrueCrypt, I think it's that's probably the best freeware encryption software out there because one, it's free. Two, it's relatively simple to use. It's not, I won't say it's dead simple for those of you who aren't really that technology oriented, but it's relatively simple to use. And I was able to encrypt my netbook's hard drive in not a lot of time. I had some stops and starts and had to deal with it. But uh, What's nice about whole drive encryption is not only is it relatively simple, but it's almost impossible to crack and get into. And we're finding that with law enforcement these days. Uh, you know, as, as they're discussing in the article that uh, that uh, there's a huge debate right now. I'm going to wander off the subject a little bit, but there's a huge debate on whether or not um, a court can compel a person to give up their encryption key, or whether that's a violation of the the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And there's a, a case going on right now where a criminal defendant. Who's been charged with? Uh, they, they've suspected his computers of having child pornography on them. The court ruled, well, he, he cannot be compelled to testify against himself by giving up his encryption key. And uh, in the meantime, they were able to break one of the keys on one of his devices, and they sure enough they found some incriminating evidence. So one another judge said, "Yep, that's enough. He doesn't get to stand behind the protection." But but yet another court has now come in and said, "Nope, that's not right either. He does have." A Fifth Amendment right not to provide that key. I don't suspect we're over now. Um, I, I think we still have a ways to go before we get some clarity about uh, about what an encryption key means and whether you know lawyers could be required to give that encryption key up on behalf of a client or 
or anything like that. I think that's going to, we're going to see many of the same issues in that regard. Well, I think that to me, it's sort of an well, interesting piece of encryption is, is you start to say, what, what is a lawyer's duty of confidentiality and how do you keep things confidential? And, and, you know, some of, some of that is tricky and, and I, I, I don't know the implications of saying, you know, is there a confidentiality? I, you know, how does the, how do the normal rules work if, if you have, if you're making calls overseas and, you know, this, the alleged NSA, uh, program is picking those things up then it's is that some kind of disclosure where you're not keeping confidential under the sort of classic analysis and so it seems to me that that you know encryption is sort of this interesting way to use technology or a a technology process to to reinforce the notion of, of confidentiality so i think that sort of raises you know maybe they're academic but it raises some interesting practical questions and 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 why i think lawyers need to think a lot about encryption and what it might mean, and 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 I think there's like a, just a ton of interesting questions that that get raised here. You know, it's the fact that you don't encrypt uh, everything, uh, you but you encrypt you know certain files. Is that a red flag that you know that's the smoking gun, or as you said, is that that it's you know some kind of bad uh, material or something that you don't want discovered in a civil litigation? Um, the whole issue of whether I mean, you have the, give the criminal example, but what if it's just a routine sort of e-discovery case, and they're encrypted files? Can you force somebody to to unencrypt those to provide a key? I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of guidance on that, and and those aren't particularly easy easy questions. But I, I think that is is uh, one of the things I've started to find or think about is really interesting in the area of encryption. So there's both this sort of practical things that you have to learn to do, but then you know, are, are there other implications that uh, you need to think through as well? Well, and, and, and when you come from an e-discovery standpoint, I, I think, and, and my experience with most of the vendors is that they have, um, I, they, they may not have Department of Defense grade, they might, but they, they, in general, are able to crack most encryption keys. If they can't, they will go back and see if they can get that key, um, which, considering that it's from the client, typically is not a problem. but. Uh, but I, I find that there's not a huge issue right now anyway with encryption and e-discovery because there are tools to, to get around it and that typically that happens. And when they can't get around it, then, uh, then, then, then the lawyers have to deal with it and talk about it. Um, you know, I, think, I, I think one of the things when you talk about the difference of, of encrypting only a few files, I, I guess maybe I take a slightly different perspective on that and think that... that, that it's not so much that people want to hide specific files or folders on their computer. I tend to think, and maybe I'm a cynic here, that people uh, will encrypt individual files and folders because they think that's the less honor, uh, onerous part of encryption. That I'm only going to encrypt the important things, the things that I really need to worry about, and, and the rest of it I'm not going to encrypt. When really doing whole disk encryption is, is not only safer, um, you're protecting everything, but it's also very easy. You just have to enter a passcode to get into your hard drive, it's not really that difficult. It's not going to be like using email and having to provide keys, a public key and a private key to everyone. It's, 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 it's very much different. And so I, I still think there is this misunderstanding and, and lack of knowledge about encryption. And I think that, again, is what is holding people back from using it more fully in their practice. Yeah, and I, I just was thinking as you were saying that, so I, I choose to encrypt a few 
files and say it's you know my my tax returns from you know from the tax return program that that I use and then if all of a sudden you know I'm being investigated for whatever reason or part of some litigation and they go oh here are these un here are these encrypted files um you know do I look bad even though they're just my tax files especially if I get my hackles up and say well I'm not going to let you see those I'm not going to give away the key am I sort of is my behavior all of a sudden suspicious when my use for this is, is is pretty normal, uh, and I, I did want to ask you one thing, Tom. While you're saying about the in the e-discovery area where there's the uh, where people can break encryption, I mean that's sort of I, I think it's worth talking about that maybe a little bit because I think the sense is if I if I encrypt, then the stuff should be safe. Or, or um, so you might elaborate on that a little bit to to give people a sense of of what you mean by that and what's actually going on out there. Well, I, and and I I I don't I, I'm gonna yell at you later for asking me this question because I don't probably know enough about it to to speak intelligently. But I think the basic rule is is that many forms of encryption can be broken. There are tools that can break. You know, you can encrypt a file with Adobe Acrobat, and it's relatively easy to crack that encryption on an Adobe Acrobat file using the right software. It's the same thinking that goes through um, most security measures. Is that is that in many cases, the security level that you choose will be to keep out the least common denominator, to keep out the, the basic person who won't have the tool, who won't go to the effort to try and break into it. But it might not hold back the serious hacker, the cracker, whatever you want to call them, the person who's able to get into those files and get to it. And, and there are lots of tools that can do that. Um, you know, we, we, didn't, we didn't talk about things like wireless uh, encryption, you know, your 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 communications when you get on a Wi-Fi network um, are generally unencrypted if it's an if it's an open network but if you're on a on a network with uh, with WEP or even WPA encryption those are two of the earlier levels um, that encryption can be broken very simply and very easily whereas now the the new standard WPA2 is is much harder if not impossible to crack at least at this point in time so i think it's a level of sophistication of the encryption tool Plus the, the 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 person who's interested in the information who's trying to get a hold of it, and I and I guess I so this sort of notion if you're using a tool like two uh, or TrueCrypt, uh, sort of like the high level of encryption, super strong password, it's it's going to be really really hard for somebody to to break that. But if you're using this sort of you know some encryption in some popular software program with a super easy password. Then it's encrypted, but somebody cracking that is going to have a, a much easier time. And there are probably tool, you know, plenty of tools out there to help them do that. Tomorrow we end up with. I, um, I think there's a lot of issues, and I, I think it's really bubbled up. I, you know, there's a lot to think about this, and I, I think lawyers should should look at in, encryption maybe in a new light. But do um, you think we're really going to see much in the way of change here at least soon? I don't think so. I mean, I think that. That stories like what happened with the NSA are interesting, and I think that they will uh, drive some conversation for a while, and they'll probably lead a lot of legal technologists to write articles and do podcasts like we're doing and discuss it and and cogitate about it. But then things, I think, you know, they, they the, the issue of encryption bubbles up every couple of years, and I think that until until there's some watershed moment, I think this may be one of those issues that requires a watershed moment to uh, to get us thinking about it and actually working uh, on doing something. And I really 
I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, at least I hope I don't see something like that happening. That would be a pretty bad thing to happen. But uh, I don't know. What about you? I don't know. As, as I'm sitting here talking, I'm I'm thinking maybe there's more chance than than I thought. And and but I, I do think that 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 ABA opinion sitting out there, I, I think, really um, sort of blessed the notion that lawyers don't need to pay attention to encryption. So it could be that the ethics 2020 changes might uh you know give us a different perspective on that and maybe make some motion so i would say i was originally going to say no i don't expect much change but as sort of i'm sitting here you know thinking about our, the conversation we just had i think maybe there's a you know a, more of a chance than i than i thought maybe in the next say three or four years that we'll see lawyers much more heavily using I- encryption And with that, we're going to uh, move on to our next segment. But before we do that, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Hi, this is Amy Thompson with Legal Talk Network, and we're talking with Jim Sherhart of Connected Data about their product named Transporter. Jim, how does Transporter help attorneys? Transporter is for attorneys who want to use cloud services like Dropbox, but don't because of privacy concerns. Transporter gives the convenience of cloud services plus 100% privacy and full control over where confidential information is physically stored. It shares files with colleagues, syncs between computers, makes off-site backups, or gives remote access using a PC, Mac, iPad, or iPhone. Learn more and see how attorneys are using Transporter at www.filetransporter.com forward slash KMR. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. I'd like to say I'm still in denial that Google Reader will actually go away on July 1st, (laughs) but in fact, I've actually got my Feedly account up and going and have been using it for the last 18 hours maybe so uh so it looks like there might be life beyond uh google reader for me however we thought we'd use this segment not to talk about google reader but instead to talk about uh, tom's new experiment with an android smartphone tom you mentioned this idea to me a few weeks ago but you really decided to take some action uh, quickly. I, I know it's way too early to draw any real conclusions, but I'm interested in your thought process, uh, sort of your experience so far, and how and why you actually made your decision to switch away from your iPhone. Well, I have to first take issue with the word experiment, because having now committed to this phone and, and having purchased it, I kind of want to say that I'm locked into this, at least for the, for the near term. And I, and I think it's a good idea. I, um, I've been not really souring on the iPhone, but I've just been sort of bored with it. I, I've, one of the things that I kind of stare longingly at with my friends who have Android phones is the fact that the Android phone is so customizable. It doesn't rely on, you're not just faced with screen after screen of app and, and all the apps. And it's just, to me, the, 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 the structure and the way that the iPhone is, is laid out it's just not attractive. I just think it's boring. I was bored, and, and I hate to say that I bought a phone out of boredom, um, and that's not entirely it, but I really wanted a change. I wanted to do something different, and what I was waiting for was I was waiting, for, I was waiting to see if iOS 7, which is due out in September, was really going to deliver a change that would bring it closer to that customization level, and 
And when I looked at it, I thought, yeah, well, it kind of does. And, and I think that iOS 7 is going to be significantly different from what you, those of you who have iPhones now. I think you're going to see a big change in the way that things are organized and the way things look. It is going to be a big look and feel change um, for how they design everything. But it wasn't enough for me to, to really justify it. So I, I bit the bullet this past Sunday. So I've had it for a whole five days now. I bought a Samsung Galaxy S4. And uh, I have to say that on the whole, I'm pleased with it. My biggest problem right now is battery life. It is sucking battery life like nobody's business. And one of the reasons that I bought this phone was because it had such great battery life reviews. So I'm, I'm currently trying to figure out whether it's just a battery issue. I need to go get a new one whether I'm you know, using too many of the, the wrong services. I'm trying to figure out exactly why the battery problems are happening. So I hope that resolves itself. Other than that, I have to say I really like the customization. I like being able to have widgets that I can uh, easily check on the weather or my calendar or see the latest news stories or you know, we're recording this during the last game of the NBA Finals, being able to look and see what the score is just by glancing um, at the screen of my phone. and. Uh, and I really, really like that. I, the one thing that I will say, if I have to have one opinion, is that it is very interesting to me how I, I have two things to say. The first is it's very interesting to me how I think the iPhone apps are more beautifully designed. I think that that even though um, there there's an Android version of an app that is on the I, iOS system. For some reason, the Android app feels incomplete. It doesn't feel like it was well thought through. It's not designed the same. It just doesn't have that look and feel that Apple really goes in for. And, and I, I'm curious as to why that is. And, you know, one thing that I'm used to having in, in my iOS is a back button. Almost all apps, if I want to go somewhere, it will have an arrow or a button to get me back somewhere. And most apps in Android don't have that. You have a, a, little, a little button on the phone itself. It's a hardware button that takes you back. And that took some getting used to. There's also a button to get to a menu. Um, on the phone, which is a, a physical button that took some getting used to. And I think the other thing that I'm having trouble with is dealing with the idea of multitasking, because with with my iPhone, it was very easy to multitask uh, with uh, just a double click of the home button and go to the multitask bar. And I'm I, I'm I'm ref reflexively doing that now. And it's instead taking me to a a voice recognition software, which I need to change and, and deal with. But those are, I think, my general thoughts. I'm, I'm pleased with it. I'm enjoying using it. It's, it's got a big, huge screen that's so much bigger than the iPhone. It's a joy to look at and to view, and it's just so much easier to read. Um, the screen is gorgeous. It's, it's a really a nice phone. Um, I, I, there's, I've got some quibbles, but I have quibbles about lots of technology. I just hope they work themselves out. It's interesting because I think it reflects the sort of the personalization of technology these days because... You know, a lot of the things that you that you said you liked about this new phone are exactly the opposite of, of what I like. You know, I like smaller screen. I'm really comfortable with the, the, the apps I use. The idea of, like, customizing and, and kind of tinkering with all those things is just, it would add to the list of things I don't have time, you know, time enough to do. So I would I would see that actually... As a, as a deterrent, and also I, I realize that I've sort of committed to living in the Apple world with uh, you know my MacBook Air and um, you know iPad, iPad Mini, iPhone. So I'm I'm comfortable in the, in that ecosystem. You you live in a more mixed ecosystem, and then also I think you use your phone uh, because you travel so much in in different ways than I do. So I think it's right. actually uh, 
your approach and and what you're doing is is I think really useful for people to think about. Just you know, one because you're not so wedded, even though you've written the books about the iPad, you're not so wedded that you can't do it that you can't go to a different phone, and then also because you're looking at you know how you use it, what you need to do, and um, does it in, improve some of the things that that you you want to do, and 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 also I think that you're not. You don't have a religious fervor about it that some of our friends do. It's kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to try this, and I think it will be helpful to me, but I don't need to convert the whole world into into a different platform. So I, I think that's really interesting about your approach. Well, and and the only quibble I'll have with the, with your statement is is that I, I I actually don't disagree with what you said and and why you stick with the iPhone. I, I I do like a slightly bigger screen. I think that the iPhone screen is a little smaller than what I'd like. I don't, you know, there are some. Some of the Android phones are so big that you can't even get a, you can't even hold them in your hand anymore. They're, they're they're not really a difference between a phone and a tablet. So I don't like that. But what I mean by customization is, just to give you an example, um, is is the idea of a widget for an app that I use. So if I have Facebook, um, I can go to the Facebook app and look at it more clearly. But if I don't really want to go to Facebook, if I just want to write a quick status update, I don't have to actually go into the Facebook app. I can just go to the widget. And enter something. If I um, if if I want to check on a on my baseball, my Texas Rangers, and see how they're doing, I don't have to open up the ESPN or the Major League Baseball app. I can just look at the widget, which is showing me a a rotating set of scores. So these widgets are are designed by the app makers, and they're designed to complement the app. And when you press on them, it takes you straight into it. So that's the kind of customization that I would would like to have with with the iPhone, the ability to still use the app. The way I'm used to, the way I'm used to on the iPhone, but to have that extra convenience, and I think it does have to do with the fact that I travel a lot, and and I I, I like to use my phone a lot when I'm on the road, um, whether it's out of boredom or whether it's out of the necessity to get information, and and I, and I really think that that Android provides a lot more opportunities there than the iPhone does, but you know who knows? Uh, I may be willing to go back to the iPhone if they decide to 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 get on the bandwagon and make their phones more interactive as well. Well, of course, it depends on the the whole two year commitment issue on the the plan as as well, which I think plays a big factor in these decisions. But indeed, now it's time for our parting shots. That one tip, website, or ob- observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. And this is a tip. Uh, this this episode, born of my own experience, my own bitter experience, and and the the tip is that in in Microsoft Office tools, auto recover does not always mean auto-recover. It is my understanding that, uh, that one of the great features of, of the new Microsoft Office since, uh, I guess, 2010 has been the ability that it, that it is auto-saving your drafts and that if you happen to lose, uh, if it happens to shut down or it crashes somehow, the, that, that auto-save will be held in an auto-recover file so that when you open that uh, app back up, you are able to uh, to to get to it automatically, and that's typically what happens to me. I, you know, the power goes out, or for some other reason, the app crashes, and I have to get back into it. There's a little pane on the on the left side of this of my screen that says, "Here are the apps that were open the last time you used it. Do you want to recover them?" And it's a pretty simple, pretty simple exercise. Until this past, I guess, Friday, when I was working on a spreadsheet that I had been working on all morning, and uh, I had not saved it. That's my mistake. So I learned that lesson, but I had not saved it at all. And the app crashed uh, after I'd been using it since about seven in the morning. It was two in the afternoon. 
when the app crashed and I ran to that auto recover folder and there was not a single thing in it. It did not exist. I went to my resident office expert, Adriana Linares, who was likewise just as stumped as I was and basically just offered the, uh, sorry, Adriana, the helpful advice. Sometimes Microsoft Office just does weird stuff. And so I think the lesson here is um, don't assume that because you have auto recover means it's going to recover every time. You need to make sure that, uh, that, that you're saving it regularly to, or at least periodically to make sure that you're not having to recreate something like I had to do last week. Dennis. Well, and also in, in, uh, in the office uh, programs too, you can go in and, and uh, crank down that, that auto save time. So it saves. Uh, but but, but I'll, I'll only say that my auto save time is like every five minutes. It's every 10 minutes. And yet I still did not have an auto recover file. So I don't know what was going on. There. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and, you know, sometimes that weird stuff does happen. It also happens in browsers, too, when you, you know, you, you think all your tabs are going to come back up. Most of the time they do, and sometimes yep. they don't. Uh, my parting shot is, uh, is people who know me, I'm, like, really enamored of this jobs-to-be-done framework that Clayton Christensen talked about as a, as a way to, to think about technology especially, but but a lot of other other things, and so um, I resisted mentioning it when when Tom was talking about his Android. But the idea is is you look at the job that you actually need to get done, and then you're asking, in, in simplest terms, you know, what am I hiring that Android smartphone to do? And if you can, the better you can answer that, sort of, the better you can make a decision, and you understand what you're what you're using that for. Um, there's a number of, uh, you, you can find information about the jobs to be done framework in a number of places, but I, there's a great thing I found and it's a podcast and it's called the jobs, it's called jobs to be done radio. Um, it's a podcast from the rewired group. You can find it in iTunes and a lot of really good podcasts that take you through, uh, their approach to jobs to be done. And, and I think if you've, if you have any interest in, in this this thing at all, I, I think listening to a few of those will really be eye-opening for you. And I, I really enjoy this podcast, so I, I recommend it highly. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our show notes blog at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes uh, on the Legal Talk Network site. Our archives of previous podcasts are still available in iTunes and on the Legal Talk Network website. And if you have questions or suggestions for upcoming episode topics, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet at tkmreport. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by reviewing or rating the podcast on iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book. The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.